0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. Midway through the week, June 7th, 2023, in case you've been in a lengthy coma and we're not even quite sure of the year. And if you weren't already in a coma by the end of this show, hopefully you still won't be. But I have been known to have that effect to people. You shouldn't listen to me when driving necessarily. And don't take us here. If you're driving, keep listening. I'm sure you're fine. Maybe you'll have some natural immunity. But nevertheless, we are going to get to some of the big issues of the day. Yesterday, we talked about the World Health Organization's plans for a global vaccine Passport. Today, we have news that some of Canada's top corporations are beating the drum hard in favor of digital identification. And not just digital ID, not just like a little sort of QR code that you can look at to uh, perhaps uh, just be reminded of your name if you forget it, but an entire digital existence in which everything you might want to do from buying something, getting a new cell phone, getting a new job is all connected to your little digital identity. We'll talk about that momentarily and a little bit later on in the show what the Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes mean for you. Plus we'll hopefully get to some other odds and ends as the show progresses. But yesterday Michelle Bachman was on the program, former presidential candidate, former congresswoman, to talk about the World Health Organization's desire to universalize and globalize the European Union's vaccine passport. They looked at Europe through the pandemic and said, wow, you know, the EU was really on top of things with that global vaccine passport of theirs. Let's make sure everyone in the world is able to use that. So this is conveniently for the WHO a great reason to assert a level of power and control over how individual countries around the world act. And it's uh, perhaps related, not directly, but certainly indirectly, that today we find ourselves looking at a digital identity white paper. Now, a white paper is just a lengthy policy paper. It doesn't have any legislative weight just yet, but it's the type of thing that tends to influence lawmakers and those who are lobbying the government for political and policy change. This one is called Peace of Mind in the Digital Age, It's Possible! With an exclamation mark and a really happy-looking woman holding an iPad on the front cover. Now, who is behind this digital identity white paper? Well, you scroll down below the forward and you see that there are a few Canadian companies that are involved in this. There's the Digital Identity Laboratory, Videotron, which is a Quebec media company. TELUS, which I used to be a loyal customer of until they screwed me over on my cell phone bill one too many times. And now I get screwed over by Rogers. Uh, KPMG, the big audit firm, Desjardins, the credit union, and Beneva, which I've never heard of, but I'm guessing is an insurance company just by the name. I'm, now, I've, now I've got to make sure if I'm right. Yes! insurance company. So that's good branding on their part, I guess, that you can tell what they are just by the name alone. But all of these companies are part of this digital identity white paper, which, among other things, says digital ID is, quote, a necessary evolution for society, unquote. Now, there are some people like me who say, yeah, digital ID is inevitable, it's coming, and I say that to warn you so that we know to fight against it. These folks are welcoming it with open arms, and they want us to all be very happy and satisfied and content in our little digital realms which conveniently enough rely on other people to both control and monitor. Every decision we make, every step I take, they'll be watching you. Is that a sting song? In any case, what we see in this white paper, if you scroll through, and I'm not going to make you do the whole 27 pages with me here, but there are a few points where they talk about how this works, and they do it all in a way that seems very eager and very excited and very happy uh, to welcome this in. Uh, For example, a page called How is Digital Identity a Step Forward? They say it strengthens privacy protection. They say governments are cracking down with harsher penalties for mismanaging personal information. So they think that the solution to this is to require more of our personal information to be there so that government can really crack down on people who abuse it. Do you know what a good way to prevent your personal misinformation from being abused and misused is? To not put it in any sort of online repository if you can help it. They say that digital ID builds digital trust. Ooh, that sounds nice. How are they going to do that? Well, the idea of trust is pretty central to what digital ID is. And uh, they even have a nifty little graphic on page seven, figure one in which they talk about the trust triangle. Now, I hadn't heard of this concept, but in the physical world, your ID card is the subject of this trust. It means that you take your ID card and you go to, I don't know, the liquor store, and they verify it because they trust that, oh, an Ontario driver's license has been issued by a legitimate body, being the government. So they say right there, the verifier trusts the issuer, and that's how it works. So uh, the government gives you an ID card, you show it to someone, that you might need to have your uh, credentials checked on and if they trust each other, you are golden. Now, I used to work, believe it or not, through university at the LCBO. Uh, I, yes, I reject vehemently the LCBO's existence as a crown corporation, but you know what? When you're a kid getting uh, $25 an hour as a cashier, it's a pretty good deal, I must admit. But I saw my share of fake IDs. I was pretty good at spotting them. One time I, I got lucky in that someone came and gave me the ID of her older sister, who I happened to know, uh, which was just really bad luck for her that day. But nevertheless, you trust the ID identify. Identify, identification issuer so you trust the person who shows you the id now we look at the individual's experience in the digital world how are you going to as the lcbo trust the digital id that some teen that wants to buy their smirnoff is going to give you well there's a little step they've had to insert in the middle there a verifiable data registry now by that they mean a place that the LCBO can go or Air Canada can go or your bank can go to verify that your document your little QR code is legitimate and we had this in the vaccine passport era where you could as a store scan a vaccine passport and it would bring you to a government page in some provinces that said if it was legitimate or not and they kept saying ooh, ooh, ooh this is entirely secure they don't have access to your personal information and then we found out that someone working in an Alberta MLA's office was actually hacking uh, effectively the database and looking up vaccine records and it was odd how all of a sudden this thing that was never supposed to be accessible to anyone was actually accessible to people so for the digital trust triangle to exist and to work There needs to be, by the enthusiastic digital ID pushers, a data registry. And that's where we get to the crux of it. It's not like a physical card that you can look at that you know is legitimate because it has all these hallmarks and emblems and holograms and stuff like that. Instead, there has to be a registry. There has to be a database. Now, some of you may say, so what's the big deal? Your driver's license may be a physical card, but it's connected to some digital record. The issue is accessibility of that and the connectedness of that and who has control of that. And anyone living in Canada doesn't have to be all that surprised to learn that there are grave concerns when your digital identity is at stake because we've seen with digital finances what happens when all of a sudden the government decides to freeze the bank accounts of political protesters of political dissidents and all of a sudden the only way you could get around is if you had cash because your bank accounts were frozen if you were Tom Morazzo or Benjamin Dictor or Tamara Leach or Chris Barber or any number of of other people who were involved in the convoy protesters. Now, digital currency is a different discussion, but very much a related one because the whole point of it is that your identity and some core hallmarks of your identity, your life, your existence, are digitized, which means they can be controlled. And some people who talk about digital ID, and it's alluded to in this white paper here will say, you know, we we can do this in a way that's a bit more like the blockchain, where only you have physical possession of this little digital ID card. You're the only one that can do it. And, you know, you put it on your phone. But once you install something on your phone. It is very easy to get lulled into this false sense of security about it when in actuality, it is not secure. And I don't just mean if someone steals your phone, but if there is this centralized registry, that has to be available to some people, that has to be accessible to some people. So we talk about this in the context of what it means to have your ID centralized and digitized in this way. And what it means is that you no longer have control of it. You are no longer a physical being with a physical existence that has physical attributes in the sense of your ID cards, your credit cards, your bank cards. Everything becomes in the cloud, as we say. And, and that means that you no longer have the ownership over it in the pure way. So at the very least, it's creepy. At the very worst, it gives governments the profound opportunity to take significant steps To curb your independence. And even if they do it unintentionally, remember, was it uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, when there was that giant Rogers outage? Actually, it was last July. I remember because I was in uh, the middle of nowhere in Northern Ireland, and I was using the GPS on my phone to get around. And when the Rogers outage in Canada happened, it affected my roaming plan because I was a Rogers customer and whichever network I was on in Northern Ireland was, you know, pinging back to my home network and they said, oh, apparently you don't have a phone plan or whatever the technical existence was. And I was a bit stranded. Now, thankfully, Northern Ireland is like the size of, you know, a large shopping mall. So it was easy enough to get around. But the point of that is that we all saw when Interact terminals were down, when we could not engage in commerce, and all you had left was cash, that when someone can control things in a digital space, it means you can't and you aren't. Let's talk about this a little bit broader in the scope of it and what it means for privacy rights, what it means in the eyes of the law. Uh, Joining me on the line now is Luke Nielsen, who is the Education Programs Coordinator for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which has itself put out a white paper on this. And I should just say, in the interest of disclosure, I sit on the board of the JCCF. That's not why I am doing this segment, though. I'm doing it because I believe it's an important one. And the JCCF's work on this has been quite strong luke good to have you on thanks for joining me thanks so much for having me on the show andrew good to be here so let's just situate this in a legal context for a moment because people oftentimes assume there is a right to privacy and i think we have certain pieces of legislation in canada that that do try to protect privacy but but it's not as simple as saying that anything that is an, an intrusion of our privacy will run afoul of the law especially when it's government that's deciding to be the intruder
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, we do have privacy laws in Canada. For instance, we have the Privacy Act, which is the highest law in Canada governing um, privacy. Um, but of course, technologies develop rapidly. And sometimes policies and laws and are even even our thinking about um, privacy doesn't keep pace with emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, or biometrics, or facial recognition technologies, or of course, digital ID. So as technology develops and improves, uh, so too does our thinking about privacy need to develop and improve.
1: So where has the JCCF approached this issue from? What's been your experience and and why did you wade into this first off?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, For the last few years, governments all across the world have been persuading their citizens to adopt digital ID uh, on their smartphones, in their wallets, um, on their laptops. And um, you know, according to Juniper Research, there are, I think, 3.8 or 4.8 billion users of digital ID across the world today. More than 70 countries across the globe have digital ID programs. And so um, it's a significant emerging technology. And we believe that it could impact the enjoyment of rights and freedoms in Canada. So while governments are persuading their citizens to um, adopt what they're describing as mere counterparts to traditional ID like passports and driver's license. Um, we think that a lot of these policies are actually asking Canadians to surrender a lot of data that is unnecessary for identification. Um, data about your behaviors and your interests and your beliefs and your financial transactions. Um, we think that government should not be in the business of uh, <laughs> peering into the intimate identities of Canadians. Um, and so we think that you know this is a significant policy debate. This is a significant um, legal challenge ahead of us, we need policies and laws that protect citizens against governments that want to know too much
1: about you. Yeah, and the one thing that, that is the most insidious about this is, is that digital ID, digital identity, biometrics, all of these things don't come about because government one day flips a switch and says your paper driver's license or your plastic driver's license is no longer. You have to be digital. They they sort of hoodwink you in with offers of things where your life will be uh, ostensibly more convenient. And I'll, I'll give one example of this. I, I, I'm i looking at my Air Canada app right now, and they have a little banner at the top of the app that says, we've introduced several in- several enhanced to our digital identification program with our latest app release. If you already have a digital profile, please upgrade, yada, 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 and create a new profile using your biometric passport or driver's license. And what Air Canada is doing here is a pilot project where instead of having to scan your boarding pass you'll be able to go through the gate because they'll scan your face and they'll say this is Andrew Lawton and uh, the machine might break when it scans my face but that's a secondary point and then the gates open and I walk in because they're saying this is slightly more convenient than me having to show a paper boarding pass or my boarding pass app. And, and for some people who are busy, I, I see that. I see that convenience. I, I see that there. Uh, you know, one example, and people may criticize me for being a sellout on this, but I have a Nexus card because it allows me to more quickly cross the border and go through airport security. Well, Netflix, uh, not Netflix, uh, Nexus has my fingerprints because that was a, a condition of the program. And I traded that little part of me for something that I got in return. But when you have corporations and government both doing this we end up uh, really getting sucked into something that is yes technically voluntary but is becoming fairly all-consuming
0: yeah absolutely you know andrew convenience and security and safety will always be the bait on the hook Um, governments are talking about hey it's so costly to conduct transactions with physical documents so let's digitize the economy let's digitize interactions with government, we're going to save millions and billions of dollars each year, Um, we're going to get people to their destinations faster, Um, we're going to lower the the probability of fraud occurring. These are all true statements. I mean, this technology will accomplish all of those things. The question is, what do Canadians have to exchange for that? Uh, Many Canadians aren't aware that governments are using laws and policies to equip them to capture data that they probably shouldn't have. Um, and most Canadians aren't aware of the costs of this right there's a cost to surrendering otherwise private information about yourself and you've talked about this on your show today right when people know too much about you they're in a position to threaten your security they're in a position to use what they know about you to limit your access to flights or to medical care or to post-secondary institutions Um, it also undermines your autonomy and your human dignity. I mean, human beings aren't specimens. They're not objects of study. And I, maybe I'm alone in this, but I don't think it's the proper function or um, purpose of government to model their citizens or to understand them um, more intimately than their partners do or their friends do. Um, so you're right. Uh, security and efficiency and, and lowering the cost of transactions, these are all very fine goals. Um, but I don't think Canadians are aware that they're surrendering something very valuable for those goods.
1: Yeah, and you'll you'll always hear. I mean, they're the most infuriating words in the English language to privacy advocates. If you have nothing to hide, uh, then you have nothing to fear. And and you know the best way I I you know have ever heard a, a kind of a, a cheeky retort to that is you know when you go into into a bathroom and close the door, everyone knows what you're doing. That doesn't mean you want to want them to watch you doing it. There there are things that are are not secrets but are nonetheless private. And I, I think that's actually a good way. Of distinguishing them, and the, the reason I, I bring that up is by saying is basically to say that when we're talking about the broader implications of privacy rights and, and digital ID, it, it's that there are certain things that just no one needs to know, and I and I mean this on on even pretty insignificant things. Let's say I go on Kijiji and I, you know, buy a barbecue from my neighbor and the neighbor says, here's the barbecue. And I say, here's $50, give me the barbecue. And I give them that cash there's no record, there's no receipt, you know, yes, should he technically be reporting that as income? Probably in the legal sense. But, but the whole point is, is that no one needs to know that happened except us. Whereas when you force digital currency as an example, or you force electronic record keeping, all of a sudden there is a record on that. And if CRA wants to go after the guy for not declaring that. $50 they can and if CRA wants to come after me for not disclosing that I have this asset in the crappy old barbecue they can and all of a sudden it becomes a tool of compliance not a tool of convenience
0: yeah absolutely um you know people think that privacy only matters for criminals for people who have things to hide and you know what we're trying to do at the justice center is to equip Canadians with conversational tools when they encounter that absurd claim that privacy only matters for criminals. No, it matters for good, uh, law-abiding, responsible, ethical citizens as well. Um, You know, you mentioned $50. Uh, The Justice Center has a case right now of a gentleman named Constable Briscoe, who was a member of a police department in Ontario. He donated $50 to the 2022 Freedom Convoy. Um, the, The Give, Send, Go donations list was hacked that data was released to the police department and um, he constable briscoe is now subject to disciplinary hearings and forced to to work without pay um, because because he donated to the freedom convoy now really what this issue is about it's it's about privacy and it's about data if government agencies can't have access to data like this um, they can't use that data to unjustifiably penalize Canadians for... Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. If he had put a $50 bill in a trucker's hand, this is an entire non-issue. He still has his career unblemished.
0: So I think a lot of times um, we, we fixate on what I might call the effects of some rights and freedoms violation. I think the core of the issue is really about privacy. If government agencies don't have data about Canadians, it's very hard for them to use data in unethical or illegal ways.
1: Now, do you buy, the white paper that I was talking about before I brought you on, Luke, has this view that it's kind of just inevitable. Now, they're a bit more enthusiastic about it. I take the view that it's inevitable, but not in a good way. Is your view that this can or should be resisted? Or is your focus on, let's put in the safeguards so that when it it comes, we at least have a a protection against these intrusions we've been talking about?
0: Yeah, great question. I mean, when I cite statistics like there are 3.8 or 4.8 billion users of digital ID today, um, it, is it inevitable? genie I mean, bottle. <laughs> it sort of happened already, yeah. right? I do think that there is a, a really important opportunity for Canadians to determine what a national or federal digital ID will look like in Canada. Um, right now, we have, I would call, very modest digital ID programs in Canada. Um, unless my understanding of the technology is wrong, I don't think they allow governments to capture um, What should be private data about Canadians, but that's not what the future will look like Um, agencies like uh, the pan Canadian trust framework of the digital identification and authentication Council of Canada are proposing, I think, very nefarious digital ID programs Canada has um, entertained a partnership with the World Economic Forum to deliver a known traveler digital identity Mm -hmm. program in Canada. And so um, these programs are more privacy violating in our public policy analysis. Uh, They do try to capture unnecessary data about Canadians. And the concern is that data will lead to control or the opportunity for control. So I do think there's an opportunity for Canadians to get involved. I think um, the time is running short, though. I mean, Canadians need to become informed about this and need to start reaching out to their elected representatives very quickly. Otherwise, uh, the public policy debate will pass them by.
1: Yeah, very well said. Luke Nielsen, Education Programs Director or Coordinator for the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. Luke, thanks very much.
0: Thanks for having me, Andrew. Nice to be here.
1: Thank you. And, and again, you know, a lot of it, when I talk about this, you're talking about theoretical risks. You know, government could do this, could do this, but theoretical risks are very important. It's not, it's theoretical and hypothetical are different because, you know, things are hypothetical until they happen, which is, I guess, the meaning of the word hypothetical, but things do happen. And, and I know that sounds kind of, you know, circular in, in nature, but uh, the trucker convoy bank account freezes are a fantastic example of this. If you had told people a month beforehand, three months beforehand they would have said yeah 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 whatever i mean maybe the government could do this but they're not going to and then government did and and while i do not accept that that should have happened and i'm not glad it happened i do find it to be a useful illustration and and if we are going to talk about these issues again i i i don't want to say that i'm happy it happened because i'm not But I'm saying that it is helpful to have that as an example of what happens when government goes to extremes, that people would generally say, oh, they're never going to do that. Well, they have, they did, and they will. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about another financial issue. And I should say, we're going to have on the show next week Anne Kavukian, who is one of the most uh, tremendously important and brilliant uh, privacy advocates in Canada. We were trying to get her on today, and uh, scheduling didn't work out, but we will have her on next week. And we'll talk about digital ID and uh, central bank digital currencies and all these related issues in a broader context. But uh, today we did have a Bank of Canada interest rate hike, yay, except not so much. It went up uh, to 4.75%, the first hike since January. Uh, joining me is the Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrizano. Uh Franco, not surprising, but at the same time also not something that will
2: come without costs and consequences. Well, you're absolutely right. And look, Canadians are going to be paying higher interest rates because the government spent and printed money like crazy. Let me break down the process. The government has been running never-ending deficits. The government printed more than $300 billion out of thin air during the pandemic. That led to higher inflation. And with higher inflation brings higher interest charges. So make no mistake about this, folks, this is directly in relation uh, in relation to the crazy out of control spending and printing that the government did over the last couple of years while we had revolving government lockdowns. That led to inflation and now Canadians are going to be paying higher interest rates, higher higher mortgage payments because of it.
1: Uh, Let me just give you the government response to your line, because every time they get criticized for this, rightfully so, by people like you and I, they always say, well, the Bank of Canada is independent. And and they try to basically pretend that fiscal policy and monetary policy are just like, you know, apples and automobiles, like that they have no relation whatsoever. I mean, Justin Trudeau's famous line in that last election is that, you know, he doesn't think about monetary policy, which I probably agree with him on that he doesn't uh, think about it. But, but, but they say that the Bank of Canada kind of does its own thing and market forces, monetary forces are, are not uh, responsive to what the government is doing. How do you counter that?
2: Well, okay, two ways. Number one, the amount of money that the, that the Bank of Canada just happened to print during the pandemic, when the government was running these huge uh, deficits into the hundreds of billions, uh, was way bigger than the amount of, of, of printing that the Bank of Canada did in other years. I mean, the growth in the Bank of Canada's balance sheet, significantly larger than what we saw during recessions of the past, including the 08-09 recession. I mean, what we saw in terms of the printing press from the Bank of Canada over the pandemic years was similar to the entire year's of, 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 of the last world war, when the Bank of Canada uh, came into place essentially around that. Okay, but the second point of this is that the Bank of Canada deserves some blame here as well. They printed more than 300 billion dollars out of thin air, and the more dollars that the Bank of Canada prints, the less that your dollars buy, That's called the inflation tax. And what did the Bank of Canada think was going to happen when you print all this type of money, launch $300 billion into an economy that was essentially locked down for two years. But here's what the big problem is for Canadians. You have the Bank of Canada officials saying that don't worry folks, inflation's going to stay low, interest rates are going to stay low. So how many Canadians then went out and got a home, a variable uh, rate mortgage, because the Bank of Canada was telling them that interest, interest rates would remain low, right? So where is the accountability now on the Bank of Canada? Where is the accountability now uh, for these federal politicians like our Finance Minister Christia Freeland and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And and, I mean, I know that Justin Trudeau liked to rag on Pierre Polyev for saying he would fire the Bank of Canada governor. But I think at a certain point, the question that a lot of Canadians would ask Justin Trudeau is, why aren't you? I I mean, why would you say you have confidence in this? It's one thing to say that, you know, he's the one making the decisions and, and not you. It's another thing to say that you tacitly or explicitly approve of those decisions.
2: Yeah, well, there is an issue with Mr. Polyev's proposal to fire the Bank of Canada governor. Uh, There's many other bureaucrats in Ottawa that should also be getting pink slips. So that's that's the main problem with Polyev's promise to fire the Bank of Canada governor. But here's the thing, right? (laughs) You Uh, think the layoffs are not expansive enough? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, look, the Bank of Canada failed. It has one it has one overarching objective. And that's to keep inflation low and around 2%. Well, if you've been to a grocery store, if you've been to a gas pump in the last two or three years, you know that the Bank of Canada failed to do its only job. Now, not only do Canadians know that, the Bank of Canada itself knows that it failed. You have the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada acknowledge that the central bank should be held accountable. Well, hold on a second, folks. The Bank of Canada also handed out $45 million in bonuses and pay raises during the pandemic and as inflation took off. So isn't that a funny way to hold your organization accountable and to go around and hand out tens of millions of dollars in bonuses and pay raises?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And the one thing about this too is that the consequences of these sorts of interest rate hikes are not always immediate. I, I mean, we're staring down a few years of Canadians uh, renewing their mortgages and finding that the house they bought, you know, two, three, four, five years ago, they won't be able to afford uh, the mortgage payments on or they're, or in some cases they're just paying and less and less of it's going towards principal. And I mean, people that went into variable rate mortgages I, I know have already uh, felt the squeeze now, that, that, again, is not immediate when the Bank of Canada raises its interest rates, but it filters down through the banks into the retail market. So it may take years for us to see just how disastrous this era has been for people.
2: Totally right. I mean, look, people right now who are on these variable rate mortgages, I know they're worried. I get texts from my friends as well asking, me, hey, what do you think is going to happen? When is the Bank of Canada going to stop uh, these interest rate hikes? Uh, so not only are people worried about losing their homes or worried about the massive amount of cuts that they have to make in other areas of their budget just to afford their mortgage payments, right? That's a real concern. But there's many other interest rates in the economy that are going to be affected by the Bank of Canada's rate hikes, right? Whether you're a business who needs to take out a loan to fund its capital, right? Well, that's going to be impacted. Mm -hmm. Even consumer debt could be impacted by these interest rate hikes. But folks, make no mistake about it. These interest rates are going up Because inflation was sky high. Inflation was sky high for three reasons. Number one was the massive spending and never-ending deficits from the government, from politicians like the finance minister, Christia Freeland, from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Number two was because of the Bank of Canada having having its printing press on overdrive, not realizing that, uh, what, this is going to be the only time in world history that more dollars doesn't lead to inflation? Of course it was going to happen. It always happens that way. And number three is the inflationary tax hikes. And I'm specifically talking about the carbon tax. There's a second carbon tax coming in right around the corner on July 1. Happy Canada Day, folks. Those carbon taxes, their design is to be inflationary. The whole objective of the carbon tax is to increase the price of gasoline, is to increase the cost for you to keep your your, your home warm during the winter months, right? So I think Trudeau and Freeland pat themselves on the back every time they pass a Shell gas station and see those high prices.
1: I've got to throw a potential curveball at you here because I don't know if my producer asked you uh, about this story, but there was a piece in The Guardian uh, that I saw, I think it was yesterday. Rich countries with high greenhouse gas emissions could pay $170 trillion dollars in climate reparations. Now, this is obviously a global story, but $170 trillion, I don't know how many countries we're going to put on the uh, distribution list there, but when they say wealthy nations, Canada's in the G7, I
2: have a feeling this will involve Canadian taxpayers. Any thoughts on this? Oh, I mean, come on, like $170 trillion? Well, here's the thing, right? What Canada should be doing, here's what Canada should be doing to help these countries that uh, may have lower living standards Uh, to help reduce global emissions, we can do it with one thing, making sure that we remove the barriers to actually develop the type of resources here in Canada, whether that's our oil, whether that's our gas, and to make sure that we can actually sell our energy around the world, right? Rather than putting in these policies in place that drive up the cost of essentially everything, like the carbon tax, rather than putting these policies in place that make it nearly impossible for job creators to develop the resources and to sell them abroad, and rather than putting in these types of policies that you just uh, talked about, which will take massive amount of money from taxpayers, rather than doing all of that, let's produce the cleaner resources here in Canada and let's sell them all around the world, reducing energy prices. That's what we should be doing. Well said. Uh,
1: if there is a, a vacancy in the Bank of Canada governor's seat, uh, do you want the job, Franco? We can all uh, start sending our emails to Pierre Polyev. <laughs> no, I sure don't, man. Sure don't. Oh, Darwin, you'd be better than uh, Tiff Mackleb there. Uh, all right, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for coming on, as always, sir. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, le- le- this is just insane. 170 trillion dollars in climate reparations. So this is basically industrialization guilt that wealthy countries are to pay to developing countries because we are industrialized and they say that we're uh, big, evil, dirty, scary uh, emitters. And you get all of us all the time at these climate summits that uh, people like the I don't know the prime minister of Tuvalu and Tonga and uh, Togo's in Africa, not the South Pacific. Uh, The Maldives there in the Indian Ocean, lovely place. My wife keeps uh, wanting me to bring her there. Uh, Will all of a sudden uh, say, oh, we're melting, we're melting. The sea levels are rising around us. And then they're like building these waterfront resorts. And I was like, uh, you know, if you're going to be consumed by the ocean then maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't be building oceanfront property. But again, I mean, I'm all for the climate reparations if it means that Canadians get to stay for free in the Maldives at the resorts that our reparations have paid for. But uh, the whole point of this is that we are talking about a massive wealth transfer. And this is part of what we were discussing yesterday with Kenneth Green, where we have a wealth transfer within countries because of carbon tax, and then a wealth transfer on a global level as the wealthy countries have to start subsidizing Uh, the other countries. Meanwhile, China just sits back and laughs at us all while building coal plants, while emitting whatever it wants, and just saying and doing the right things when they're at these big, giant climate summits. I wanted to do a bit of an update on our Pride discussion from a few days back on the show, and I talked about the woke virtue signaling that we see from corporations, and one of the big things that we've seen in the development of the Pride uh, season in Canada, like I said, it's not Pride Month anymore, is that it tends to push people a little bit outside of their comfort zones, and I'm not talking about scary right-wing evangelicals, I'm talking about uh, Muslim Canadians, for example, who uh, themselves are maybe tolerant of uh, people having their sexual orientations, their gender identities, and whatever, but perhaps don't want to cheerlead for it, which has become the expectation. And it was interesting to see this reach a bit of a boiling point in my own city, London, Ontario where a couple of months back in, I believe it was February or March, there was this international day against homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. And one local public school, which has about a third of its population Muslim, found that 400 students, the virtually the entire Muslim population of the school, stayed home on this day. And then all of a sudden you had this weird sort of diversity hierarchy of who do we side with, the gender activists or the Muslims? Who, who's on the winning side of it? Remember a few years ago when you had the Muslim estheticians and the transgender spa clients, and you had to decide whose rights mattered more? That's what's happening now. And then we have this audio from a teacher in Edmonton uh, lambasting Muslim students for not being all gung-ho about the school's Pride festivities.
0: If you want to be respected for who you are, if you don't want to suffer prejudice for your religion, your uh, color of skin, your whatever, then you better give it back to people who are different from you. That's how it works. It's an exchange. And it isn't like that in all countries. As I told you, in Uganda, literally, if they think you're gay, they will execute you. If you believe that kind of thing, then you don't belong here. Because that is not what Canada believes. We believe in freedom. We believe that people can marry whomever they want. That is in the law. And if you don't think that should be the law, you can't be Canadian.
2: You don't belong here. And I mean it. I really mean it. And it's not a joke, Manzour.
1: It's not a joke, Mansoor. Now, there, there, poor Mansoor there, who just probably smirked at the wrong point as the teacher just went off on this tirade, is uh, actually representative of a bigger dialogue. And it's interesting how people think that all this pandering they do will come back in favor of them. The teacher said, you know, basically all the gay students did your Ramadan thing. So now all you Muslim students need to do the pride thing. And it was amazing, actually. She said the quiet part out loud, seeing just how transactional it is when you start playing the diversity games. Obviously, uh, in Canada, we have to accept people with different views, different lifestyles, different identities. As a Christian I have to accept and I'm okay to accept that there are Muslims and Jews and Sikhs and Buddhists and atheists and they have to and should accept that I exist as a Christian as a straight married white guy I will accept that there are other people who are not like me and I, I do actually believe as much as we make fun of Justin Trudeau for his diversity as our strength business I believe the world would be very boring if we all had the same outlooks and identities. And the reason I bring that up is by saying that there is a difference between coexisting and celebrating. And the edict that we get from that teacher in Edmonton is that we can't just coexist and we can't just tolerate. We must celebrate. Stephen Lecce, the education minister in Ontario, issued a statement yesterday in light of some of this pride tension at Ontario schools saying that schools must celebrate. That's a part of what tolerance is. They must celebrate. And this is something that I'm paraphrasing, but was basically the sentiment. And this is why we're seeing resistant to the prideification of schools. People that were completely fine, I believe, with the existence of gay-straight alliances. People that were uh, completely fine with gay civil rights. But when it starts being pushed to a point where they can no longer have their own religious views, their own religious values, their own cultural views... Uh, that becomes the source of tension. And when you push people too far, rightly or wrongly, they're going to push back. And I think that it is important that we understand the difference between tolerance and celebration. And I go back to my discussion with Sue Ann Levy about this. A, A lesbian woman herself who said, you know, she can walk down the street. She has equal rights. She views it as being very different when you look at what people are advocating right now. That does it for us for today. We will end things there back on Friday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for
0: listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at
1: www.tnc.news.